voicerepublic.com, home to the spoken word. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Robert Dijkraaf, Director and Leon Levy Professor here at the Institute for Advanced Study, and it's a great pleasure to welcome you to this uh, faculty lecture. Our speaker today is uh, Vladimir Wojewodski, Professor in the Institute School of Mathematics since 2002, and a member in the school before that at several occasions. Now, today's lecture is entitled Univalent Foundations, New Foundations of Mathematics, which of course the foundation of mathematics is a topic that has a long and deep history here at the Institute with people like von Neumann, uh, Kurt Gödel, and others. And I hope Vladimir will describe some of the exciting things that actually have been happening here at the Institute around this Univalent Foundations project uh, which was started here, in particular last year, last academic year, had a very intense period with a large group of mathematicians, computer scientists, logicians, uh, being together working on what I understand is essentially trying to uh, formulate mathematics in a, such a way that kind of computers can help uh, with uh, proving their rigor foundations. I, just one anecdote, I once was in a discussion about the future of mathematics and Misha um, Gromel, famous mathematician, was in the audience, and at some point he jumped up and went to the blackboard and wrote a large M of mathematics as a function of T. And he says, what is the limit for T to infinity of mathematics? And he clearly said, well, it's computers. So I think today we'll see uh, a part of that, uh, that answer. Um, in fact, in that program, uh, two streams of development came together the one in constructive mathematics and the theory and practice of programming languages, and the other one, pure mathematics. And I think actually that program, we are very proud of it happening here under the leadership of Vladimir, because it was also very much innovative in the way it worked together. And that innovations came to, uh, to fruition also in the book that was published, the so-called hot book, uh, which is quite amazing uh, for many reasons, because if you open it, not only it's 500 pages, uh, uh, more than 40 mathematicians worked on it, and it was written in less than nine months. But if you look at it, it has no publisher and it has no list of authors. So it's a truly collaborative effort, and um, and I think it's a, it shows that you know, in, even in a field of mathematics where we celebrate uh, individual achievements, th uh, this kind of collaboration can be extremely productive. Now, Vladimir is actually known for his work in homotopy theory of schemes, algebraic K-theory, and the relations between algebraic geometry and algebraic topologies. And he made some outstanding advances in these fields. Uh, particular uh, of great consequences are uh, the solutions he found of two famous conjectures, the Milner conjecture and the Bloch-Cato conjecture. As I said, currently he is interested in this kind of foundational material, uh, type theoretic formulations of mathematics, and automatic proof verification. His truly extraordinary contributions to the field of mathematics have led to many, many awards and honors, but perhaps most famous is the uh, very prestigious Fields Medal that was awarded to him in 2002 for his work on developing a homotopy theory for algebraic varieties and formulating motif homology. He has been awarded many additional honors, 
mention the Sloan Prize, the Clay Prize Fellowship. He's a member of the European Academy of Sciences and had already a very long and distinguished career. He received his PhD in 1992 at Harvard, where he was also a fellow and a visiting scholar. He was, in addition, a visiting scholar at the Max Planck Institute in Bonn for mathematics. And prior for joining the institute, uh, Vladimir was an associate professor at Northwestern University during the years 1996-1999. Uh, the Institute of Advanced Study is very pleased uh, to host this lecture, in particular because we do it also in honor of the Princeton Adult Schools, who uh, are celebrating their 75th anniversary, just a little bit younger than the Institute. And the Institute supports and shares the Adult Schools' mission to promote and foster lifelong learning and exploration in the Princeton community. Um, and uh, just the other day I got their t-shirt which said uh, feed your curiosity which I think is a very good theme for today's lecture in many ways first of all we have the lecture in a moment then there will be a question and answer period so as always followed by a reception when you can feed more than just your curiosity uh, in the common room to which you're all invited so now I look at Vladimir are you ready is your computer ready which is <laughs> We're very happy that we have a live presentation here by a mathematician, not by a computer. Please welcome Vladimir Vojvodsky to the stage. Okay, now it's on. Um, so um, my today's lecture has a very uh, mathematically sounding um, title, but uh, it's, you'll see that it's more probably would be more interesting not even to mathematicians or even scientists, but to historian of science and to uh, historians uh, of science and mathematics, historians of 20th century and now 21st century science and mathematics. Um, it's not because I'm saying that the talk is going to be historical, but because I'm going to um, talk a lot about some events in mathematics uh, in the recent past. So, uh, and I will be following just my, um, kind of my personal story and, and, and showing some things which um, been important both to me personally and which led me to univalent foundations and which I think are actually characteristic of many things in mathematics which are seldomly spoken about. So um, my mathematical career starts around 1984. And uh, it starts with me getting a copy from George Shabbat, my first advisor, um, of a very recent then text by Alexander Grothendieck, um, which was called the Schizdurm Program, um, which hasn't been published until 20 years later, um, or maybe 15 years later. Um, um, and which was his attempt to to return to mathematics through CNRS. Um, so I learned French in order to be able to read this text because it didn't exist in any translation and there wasn't anybody around who could have translated it for me. And started reading it and then I started, and it was just full of, of ideas basically and full of questions which could be explored. And so Yuri Shabbat and I first and um, Later, Kapranov and I started to, to work out on some of these ideas. So the 
text on the right, so the image is, is not very good um, on this screen, but that's, that's a copy of the first page. That, that's, that's a photograph, actually, of the first page of, of a paper of mine from sometimes back in, in 85 or something. Uh, typed on a typewriter uh, in Russian uh, with... Actually, it's not a typewriter. It's probably a little later. It's probably already typed on one of the first PCs which were available back then uh, in MS-DOS or something like that. So, um, yeah, let me, sorry. Um, so, like five years later, in 89 or something around that time, I met Michael Kapranov, who is now a very well-known mathematician, who was my second scientific advisor after Shabbat. And um, both, uh, he was like five years older than I was, and, but we were both very fascinated by this new idea in mathematics, new for us at least, uh, and at least fresh idea back then in mathematics about this multidimensional mathematics, mathematics of objects which belong to two categories and, and um, which kind of generalize the usual mathematics of, um, of sets and categories. So the first paper which we wrote together was called Infinity Groupoids as a Model for a Homotopy Category. It's, um, it's actually a mistranslation by somebody translated this uh, for us. It, was, it should have been uh, as a model for the homotopy category. Um, so, in this paper, we um, claimed to, to have formulated precisely and proved one of the most outstanding ideas of Grossendieck from a Schizdurn program. Uh, the idea which connected two classes of mathematical objects, infinity groupoids and homotopy types. Um, then Misha and I, then, then we also tried to do Mativic cohomology together. Um, it didn't work so well. Um, then uh, in the summer of 1990, Kapranov, through his connections, arranged for me to be accepted to the graduate school at Harvard without me even knowing about it or applying. So I actually received a phone call. Actually, my mother received a phone call when I was in a different city, and she had to, catch, to, to fetch me from that other city saying that, Vladimir, you have to come back to Moscow like immediately because you've been accepted to Harvard. Um, and so, um, so I came to, to Harvard as a grad student. Kapranov went to Cornell as a, as a postdoc. Um, and our mathematical paths diverged from, from that time on. And I went into developing um, Mativic cohomology and Mativic homotopy theory, something which Robert just mentioned and um, which earned me the field medal. And this text on the right, again, it's again a photograph of something. It's, if you look at the um, date over there, it's March 29, 91. So it's three days from now, uh, 23 years ago. Um, three days from today, 23 years ago, and the first sentence in this, this is my, these are my hand notes. This I was writing for myself. Um, and uh, the first sentence says, what is the homotopy theory for algebraic varieties or schemes? Um, so, when I entered the field of Mativic cohomology, Mativic homotopy theory hasn't existed yet, 
um, it was under kind of a under a shadow in a sense. It, it was it had a very poor reputation among mathematicians, especially in America. Um, and it was considered to be extremely speculative and lacking firm foundation or firm results. Um, like a very um, extremely innovative paper by Spencer Bloch in 1986. Um, it was found by, by Andre Suslin, who actually became my third uh, scientific advisor. Um, it was found to contain a mistake in the proof of lemma 1.1. So the proof itself is, is one paragraph, literally one paragraph. And the paper was published and, and several years have passed or at least a couple of years have passed before and nobody, nobody paid attention to, to this proof on the first page of the, of, of the paper, a one paragraph proof. Until Andre started uh, giving some lectures, I think, in uh, St. Petersburg and, and tried to reproduce the proof by himself and, and failed. And this lemma was the key lemma on which everything else in the paper depended. So the whole paper became, as I say here, unsubstantiated. Uh, eventually, of course, Spencer was, was very unhappy about this whole story and a lot of people were, uh, were unhappy and, and the whole field got a bad reputation. And, um, Several people, at, I mean Spencer in the first place, uh, worked very, very hard trying to correct the proof because they really believed strongly in the main results of the paper. And that was a technical lemma. And uh, they have, he has in the first place succeeded. And in, the, at the, in 1993, he uh, published a preprint with, with a new proof of essentially the same lemma which was not one paragraph, but 30 pages of very complicated arguments and um, very innovative also arguments. And it took many years before mm, that proof was accepted. Um, and there is a little anecdote in the second half of this slide which I'll skip. Uh, so um, while while this thing with the moving lemma by, by Spencer was unfolding, um, I was succeeding in, in, in a different approach to motivic cohomology. And um, I, and first by myself and then in collaboration with Suslin and with Friedlander, we've developed a new approach to, to motivic cohomology, which went in a different, which was very, very different from, from uh, Spencer's. Um, and they relied on, a technical, on technical results in my paper, which was called Cohomological Theory of Precious with Transfers, which was written while I was a member here in 92-93. I remember sitting until four in the morning in, in the housing complex with a lot of tea and, and writing proofs for this technical little lemmas in this paper. So, um, and the paper became very popular. It's the results of the paper are very clean. It's, um, it's very, very useful for many applications. Lots of people referred to it. Lots of people used the results. It was, it was widely read and, and it was presented at different seminars. Then in 1999, 2000, 
began at the IAS. I was giving lectures on my own work, and Pierre was taking notes, Pierre Deligne. And uh, then when I was preparing for, for the next installment of my lectures, I discovered that a kind of a very important technical lemma in this cohomological precious with transverse paper contains a mistake. And the mistake was very, very tiny, I mean, on, on, on the first side. But uh, I, I forgot a condition that some open set has to be affine for those who understand what it means. Uh, and, uh, but, but the lemma in the form in, in, in which it was written and published by that time um, um, could not be salvaged, so it had to be uh, reformulated and fortunately it was possible to use a weaker lemma to get all the same results um, in this paper, all the same results which were really important for applications. And then we've published a corrected version of it in 2006. So I was, I got very worried after this story because it was not kind of something, it was clearly not an accident in a sense. It was a complicated paper um, and which been read and read and, and overread and presented and nevertheless, uh, obviously the people who read the paper or presented the, the results of the paper were, uh, were kind of automatically avoiding checking precisely those uh, parts of the paper where the mistakes were most likely to occur. Um, so the ones which are technical and which are buried deep inside the paper. And, um, anyway, so that was, that was a big thing for me. So, um, but this is not, but at least I found it myself and I corrected it. Yeah, this is not the only way these things can go. Uh, here is a different story, and I mean another story from, again from my own life. So in October 98, uh, Carlos Simpson published a preprint called Homotopy Types of Strict Three Groupoids. So it was nine years after um, my paper with Kapranov. And in this uh, preprint, he basically claimed to have produced a counterexample to the paper with Kapranov, to, 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 to the main theorem in our paper with Kapranov. Uh, I don't remember whether he has contacted me about it or not. I couldn't, I, I was looking through my emails, I couldn't find any, any trace of any emails from him with, um, which would point this out to me. Um, I certainly heard about it later, but I was so sure that our paper with Kapranov was correct that I have not understood that it was wrong until this fall, like a few months ago, which is 25 years after the paper was published and 16 years after the mistake in the paper was found. And it wasn't just me. I mean, the um, people in the field, the specialists in the field, I looked through some blog posts and so on, 
they basically all write things like, I think that maybe this paper by Simpson says that that paper is wrong. But there is still no um, recognition in the field that um, our paper with Kapralnik is wrong. And it is like plainly wrong. I mean, the main theorem is incorrect. And uh, what Simpson does here is provides a, a counterexample to the main theorem. And the main theorem is just plainly wrong. It, it's not that there is some gap in the proof. It's just that the main theorem is, is totally wrong. Uh, 25 years. And it is an important paper. We'll see that it's important in, in a moment. So there were at least two factors which contributed to this situation. So one factor was that Simpson constructed a counterexample, but he couldn't find where the mistake was in the paper. So he didn't really point out that particular lemma or that particular line in Voivodsky-Kapranov-Voivodsky Kapranov arguments is wrong. He just said, look guys, here I have a theorem which, which basically contradicts what they have written and I think that I'm right and they're wrong. But that didn't impress anybody and uh, the bad thing is that nobody, him included, came out and challenged us on, on this issue. And so as a result, the whole field, in fact, was uh, in a rather bad, bad position because it is a fundamental theorem which now needs to be addressed and a correct form of it needs to be obtained before the field can move forward. And it could have been done much um, earlier if it was known that our, our result is, is false. So at about the same time as, as Simpson's paper appeared, um, and about the same time when I discovered the mistake in my Mativic paper, I was working on something new and something really exciting to me, which um, I called two theories. So the picture on the right, it's a three-dimensional diagram. If, you, if I had a better resolution, I could probably show you that every arrow in this diagram is numbered and the highest number is 44. And uh, actually on the next page there's supposed to be a long formula for, the, uh, for what each arrow is, like for, for all 44 arrows. And the commutativity of this whole three-dimensional thing is the proof of, of some theorem in this two series. And um, as I was working on these ideas, I was kind of getting more and more uncertain about what to do. So on the one hand, the mathematics I was doing, these two series, it was precisely the kind of new, very innovative, multidimensional mathematics which Kapranov and I wanted to build. But precisely because it was new and innovative, it was not relying on analogies. And I didn't have an obvious way to ensure that I don't make a mistake. So what could I do? I could probably write a thousand pages text with formulas um, to try to make sure that all these arguments are indeed formally correct. 
Probably, but not certainly, because there were other issues which were deeper than just writing down formulas. And basically, I was hitting at this time two problems that, I mean, I was hitting like two issues at the same time. One issue is that if something is technically complicated and innovative at the same time, then it's highly unlikely that anybody would, uh, would check it in detail, and it's uh, highly likely that there might be a mistake. On the other hand, Unlike many other fields where one can do things like numerical experiments, this kind of mathematics is very far from being connected to numerical experiments. There is no way to uh, ground oneself in, in doing usual computations. One has to do the reasoning right. There is no other way of ensuring that one doesn't make a mistake. And to make matters even worse, the existing um, foundations of set theory were not so, so well adapted for, for making precise mm, logical arguments about the kind of objects which arose in, in these two series studies. So, in fact, it was so bad that, um, that I, as, as I write here, I basically, that was the point at which I stopped doing what is called curiosity-based research. Because the areas where curiosity were leading me and areas which I considered to be of, of value and of interest and of beauty, I didn't have tools to explore. So I started to look into what I could do to, 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 to create such tools. And um, it soon became clear that, that there isn't, that the only long-term solution is somehow to, to make it possible for me to use computers in um, verification of my uh, abstract um, logical and mathematical construction. So I started looking at various options about uh, doing that. And I discovered a very interesting, I mean, it's now I can say that it's interesting. It's interesting from the perspective of a historian. From my perspective back then, it wasn't interesting at all. It was uh, extremely frustrating. And, uh, and, and bad situation, because I really wanted to do my mathematics, and I needed tools. Um, Instead, I discovered the following, that um, the software for verification of mathematical reasoning was in successful development, uh, at least since late 60s, since the late 60s. So here is a page from, from a very interesting book, which is called Selected Papers on Automath. So Automath was one of the first really successful um, software systems for uh, verifying mathematical reasoning. Um, and if you look at just this first line, then half of the things which, which I could say or would like to say about the need for um, computer verification of mathematical reasoning and, and all my arguments, I mean, 
half of it is beautifully expressed there, back in, in whatever it was when this paper was written. The automath itself is from 68. Um, people who did it knew it back then. So, and however, when I started to look for, for a system like that in 2000, I couldn't find any. I mean, there were system ar systems around. There were several uh, groups developing such systems, but none of them was in any way appropriate for the kind of mathematics which I needed a system for. Uh, moreover, uh, when I started kind of exploring further and talking to, to people around, it, it was almost a forbidden subject by that time among mathematicians. I mean, that's, this paragraph I think well reflects uh, the situation. So if you start, it's, it's true even now, if you start a conversation um, with mathematicians who haven't had such conversation with me before uh, about um, uh, computer verification of proofs and mathematical reasoning, one of the first things which they would put out as, as a shield would be a Gödel's incompleteness theorem. It's impossible because there is a Gödel's incompleteness theorem. The Gödel's incompleteness theorem has absolutely nothing to do with this. Um, so the second thing they will say if there are more kind of um, if they know more more facts, they'll say, okay, here, here is this development by, by Tom Hales, who has uh, proved the Kepler conjecture, and now for the next, uh, for, the, for the last, like, 15 years, he has been trying to, uh, to formalize it, and has created, like, 50,000 lines of, of computer code, which takes, uh, and, and it, his program has, and the uh, computer verification program has been running nonstop for the last, I don't know how many years, and still hasn't completed. Uh, verifying his, uh, his formalization of uh, his proof. And so that's what, uh, what computer proof verification is. This is what we're going to get if we go this way. We're going to get this huge, uh, unreadable masses of, of computer code, which will take enormous amount of time to, to check so that nobody will be able to check it twice. And... Uh, and, and that generally, the whole thing is just is just ridiculous. So, um, very few mathematicians actually persisted in doing something uh, during this time in terms of uh, computer verification. And among them, um, the two best known today names are Tom Hales, whom I just mentioned, and Carlos Simpson. It's the same very Simpson who found a mistake in. Um, my paper with Kapranov. In fact, after he has found that mistake, and I think in part because he couldn't convince anybody that what he found is a mistake, he started to uh, do computer verification of mathematical reasoning, and um, he is now one of the leaders in that field, as in some others too. Um, so, so what was the problem? And, and, and th there was a problem. I mean, it, it's true that th there was no usable system to, to do it. Um, but obviously the complaints, which, which would be usually issued, were, were not um, 
were not correct. I mean, the, the reasons which were given for, for the fact that there were no um, good computer verification systems were, were false reasons. Um, so as we, as I at least understand now, and I'm reasonably sure that I'm, that I have a good point in that and that soon it will be um, more clear to, uh, to many, is that the actual roadblock which, which the field hit back in late, in the late 60s, early 70s, right at the time when automats appeared, um, was the fact that the foundations of mathematics were unprepared for, for the needs of um, computer verification of mathematical reasons. So, so there is a, let's see, so here is what it has to do with, with foundations of mathematics. Um, computer only understands formal languages. So in order to write, in order for a computer to verify mathematical reasoning, mathematical arguments, these arguments need to be written in a formal language. Now writing mathematics in a formal language, that's precisely what foundations of mathematics, um, that's one of those things, uh, ability to encode mathematics in, in a formal language is precisely one of the things which foundations of mathematics are supposed to provide. That's their responsibility foundation, to provide um, a way to write mathematics formally. So, um, and indeed the existing foundations, which I'm going to talk about in a moment, um, they do provide such, such means. And one can use them to, to take one particular theorem and spend days maybe to write this particular theorem in the formal language of the existing foundation. So, and they are completely inadequate for, for actually writing things in formal language in the, on the everyday basis, and that's what we need. We don't need some system which will verify our proofs after they're made. We need a language in which we can write our proofs as we c construct them, as so that they're verified at every step of the construction, so that we don't create some body of um, text which then turns out to be useless because there is a mistake in the first line or in the first lemma. Um, so, so we need such a language which can be used for um, everyday work so that we can, we can do things with it. And um, the existing foundations were not, were not good for that. Uh, and they were not good for two reasons. For one reason is that they were based on languages of predicate logic. And languages of predicate logic are not, are not practical for expressing the way human mathematicians think or, or build their proofs. And um, uh, secondly, um, existing foundations could not be used to directly talk about such objects as the ones which I had to do work with in, in my two series. Um, activity. 
So, on the other hand, the problem is that the existing foundations were extremely successful. And they are largely, I mean, they are responsible for, for great successes of mathematics of the 20th century. And it is very difficult to, um, to, to get, to let go of something which have been holding someone for a long time and, and so, so well. So I think that's what basically happened back, in, in part that was one of the reasons, that one of the things which happened back in, in late 60s, early 70s in, in, this, in this field, because the ideas for new foundations were there. They were just not followed. Um, I mean, in fact, mathematicians just completely blocked themselves away from, from all activity in, in, in that direction. Um, so, the existing foundations, I will go a little faster now and uh, I'll leave some time for questions. There, there are more stuff on the slides and uh, the slides will be posted and you will have a chance to, to have a look at the slides later, but I, I don't want us to, to go over time too much. But I'll, I'll, I'll say a few, a few words here. So, at the moment, but let me, Okay, let me do it still this way. So, so if, if someone asks kind of a, a conservative kind of formal for mathematician um, about what mathematics is based on, such a formal for mathematician will, uh, conservative formal for mathematician probably will say on Sermelo Frankel uh, set theory. And, um, and that's how it was presented for decades or like for almost, for close to a century now, in fact, I think. So, um, and, and anybody who had this urge of getting to the bottom of things had a very simple road to follow. So if someone wanted to know to be sure in things about things in mathematics and to, to rely on something one had to do uh, just to follow this, this uh, simple algorithm which is, uh, which is written in this paragraph. Learn what is predicate logic, like first order predicate logic, that's simple, that's relatively simple for someone who has uh, mathematical inclinings. Mm, learn ZFC, then, then learn how to translate basic mathematical concepts into ZFC and then kind of learn to believe that, that everything else can be translated into, into this concept. Um, there were problems with it. Uh, and the problems with ZFC, as I say, uh, and I mean, as I, as I think, I, I think that th that's, that's for historians of mathematics of the 20th century to agree or disagree, but I think the first problems could be seen in, in the decline of, of Bourbaki enterprise. So Bourbaki was a, um, a group of French mathematicians who starting in 1930s probably, I, I don't know the history all that well, uh, started to write a treatise uh, with the, where they wanted to get a, 
a systematic exposition of all existing mathematics based on set theory. And uh, the first books are wonderful. I, I learned my, my topology and my algebra from Bourbaki. Uh, but as, as they go into more contemporary fields, it becomes less interesting. And basically, in the, by the 60s, I think, their activity was, was very much in decline. Because it, and, and th there are many, many reasons given for that. And, uh, but I would like to say that one of the major reasons was that it was felt deep, deep, th these were very honest people, very rigorous people who were, who were writing these books. And they couldn't just, just pretend that everything is okay. They had to, to do everything honestly. And honestly, they couldn't write uh, contemporary mathematics honestly in based on ZFC. It just didn't work. And I think that's what, mm, what led to the, this decline. So uh, what is on the right is, uh, so the, the yellow emphasis is mine. It's a program of a conference by invitation only, uh, sponsored by Templeton um, in a wonderful place in Austria where I was invited to give a talk uh, in 2011. And you can see that, so that's a conference in, in particular in foundations um, of mathematics. And so we had day two about set theoretic foundations of mathematics and day three about category theoretic foundations of mathematics. So um, at the time, like very, very recently, 2011, the picture of foundations was like that. that there is set theoretic foundations, which are a golden standard, and then if somebody is unhappy with set theoretic foundations, there is this crowd of, of, of uh, kind of uh, rule breakers, which I mean, they probably were 50 years ago, well, 40, um, who are building new foundations. So if, you don't, if you're not satisfied with the old set theoretic foundations, go to these guys who are doing new foundations based on category theory. And that's how it worked. And that was a very stable system. Uh, which completely stalled development in um, the foundations of mathematics for many years. It, it didn't, didn't, it wasn't that problematic for mathematics actually itself, but foundations were not in a good shape. Uh, and, and for me personally, it was precisely this idea that categories is the right thing, which was the major roadblock. And I, uh, I clearly remember how kind of this feeling of a breakthrough when I understood that the categories are not sets in the next dimension, that this is wrong. And that sets in the next dimension are what we call groupoids. Um, and I also clearly remember how I was hitting this, I, I was moving towards this idea multiple times. I, I was like, I was spending hours and hours and days and days on end for, for several years trying to, to somehow get through this, um, through this barrier. And uh, I remember kind of approaching this idea and then going back uh, because of this very, very old argument which, which I heard that Grossendieck uh, was like, one of the great innovations of Grossendieck was to go from isomorphisms to all morphisms, actually in algebraic geometry. But um, somehow that was the thought which wouldn't let me, uh, wouldn't let me through. I was just 
hitting this and, uh, and saying to myself, okay, I must be wrong. Uh, and, and then and when, when I finally, finally decided, finally kind of allowed myself to, to think through and to believe that I'm right, um, everything started to fall into place in this um, particular uh, field. So, and what came out of it are our univalent foundations, the topic of my today's talk, which of course I don't really have much time to talk about. Um, so unlike category theory, it's, it's a complete foundational system. Uh, so it's foundational system with its own formal language, formal deduction system, with its own class of basic objects, about which, so to speak, the formal deduction system allows to reason, and its own way of uh, deducing, um, reducing um, general mathematics um, into statements about this um, basic object. So, um, and that's what I said. So there, there are three, I think there's three components to every um, practical, every complete foundational system in mathematics. And the first component is the formal deduction system. The second component is, is something which provides direct meaning to sentences of this formal deduction system. And the third component is something which enables us to translate general mathematics into the objects um, about which the sentences can directly speak. So uh, in ZFC, for example, uh, the second component, which is most powerful in ZFC in a sense, is, um, is based uh, on our ability to intuitively comprehend hierarchies. That's why we believe that ZFC is consistent because we can imagine ourselves and intuitively access um, hierarchies. And that's what ZFC um, directly talks about. And then of course there is an issue of translating the rest of mathematics into statements about hierarchies, which can be done surprisingly well, but not, not well enough. Uh, okay, so again, what follows are, there, there are a few more slides uh, which I'll, I'll skip and, and um, you can, uh, those who are interested can have a look at them later on when they're posted uh, about univalent foundations and the structure of this, excuse me, I, I'm, yeah, I'm <laughs> the structure of the <laughs> three components of univalent foundations and, um, and the names associated with this so, um, I gave my first, um, I've been working on these ideas. I think this, this kind of breakthrough that categories are wrong, that was like a major breakthrough, must have happened around 2005. And, and then from there on, it was more kind of creative work rather than, mm, rather than just hitting the same wall over and over again with, with one's head. Um, so my first presentation was in Munich uh, in November 2009. Um, and then in the spring of 2010, I remember this faculty meeting which we had at the School of Mathematics and we were discussing programs for, for the coming years and there was one year free from, from, from plans and 
and then kind of without having, without planning for it at all myself, I suddenly uh, started talking and said, how about I organize a program on new foundations of mathematics? And everybody agreed. Um, and but at that time, it wasn't at all clear that it's, um, that it can work. So, but it, it did work and the program well, uh, went really well. Um, and I now do my mathematics with a proof assistant. So I'm, uh, I mean, I, I'm still, I have a lot of um, wishes in terms of getting this proof assistant to work better. But, uh, but at least I, I don't have to go, to go back at home and, and, and worry about having made a mistake during my day work. Uh, I know that if I did something, I did it and I don't have to, to come back to it. Nor do I have to worry about my arguments being too complicated and then I wouldn't be able to explain those arguments to anybody because I can always say that, okay, they're too complicated, but I mean, this particular part, if you don't care to, to understand it, you can just trust the computer. Um, and so in a sense, I think I'm, I have much, I have some of what I, uh, what I was trying to get when I started this whole um, activity. Um, but it's, it's still just me and Dan Grayson who, who has been also doing uh, mathematics on a computer for the last, what, five or six months. And, and a few other people among mathematicians, there are many people in computer science who are doing, who, who are uh, contributing to our program, but m most mathematicians are still not, um, still don't believe that, that, that it's a good idea. And I think that's very wrong. And um, to finish, I would like to thank all of those who are uh, trying to understand the ideas of univalent foundations and who are developing these ideas and who are trying to communicate these ideas to others. And I know that it is difficult. Thank you. VoiceRepublic.com, home to the spoken word.